few statistics I've shared with you before. We've talked about peace a few times, and I've shared a couple of statistics, one being the history of war in our country alone. And since 1776, there have only been uh, 93% of our existence, 90% of the time, this country has been at war. 222 uh, out of the 239 years when this statistic was, well, came out, uh, only 222 years of those, or only uh, of those, 222 years had been at war. If you look at the world as a whole, worldwide, only 8% of recorded history, since history was started to be recorded, since that point, only 8% has the world seen peace. And so, you know, you look around, you look at the history books, you look at our country, as young as it is, and in the existence of our country alone, war has just been a part of life, and it continues. I mean, there's very little peace if you look at it on the basis of peace being just the absence of conflict. And, you know, you look right now in our society, in our culture, what's going on with the unrest and uncertainty, acts of violence. Uh, it, it's, it's a question that we all ask, that question being, is there really ever going to be peace? And is there a such thing as real peace? Well, the Bible says a lot about peace. As a matter of fact, it's a book of peace. The word peace occurs over 400 times in the Bible. Uh, when Jesus was born, it was announced, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We see peace mentioned several times. In John chapter 14, Jesus himself said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Paul said, he himself is our peace in Ephesians chapter 2. But that's one side of the story. We also see verses like in Ecclesiastes that says there's both a time for war and a time for peace. But why is that? Why is there war? Why does war exist? Well, one of the reasons war exists is because each of us, we're all, even those of us who are children of God, we're at war on the inside. We're constantly battling the flesh. And of course, the, the, the bigger picture, the fact that sin exists, there's war, good versus evil, right? There's spiritual war that's going on. I mean, you, you look through the book of Daniel, and, and, it's, and it's explained pretty clearly that there's this spiritual realm. In our, our study through the armor of God, we talked about spiritual warfare, and there's this spirit war going on in the spiritual realm that if we could see it, we would be horrified. But it's there, it exists, so there's war, whether there's peace on earth or not, there's constantly war going on, there's spiritual war. It exists and it begins in each of our hearts. We battle the flesh, we battle temptation, we battle sin, and that spills out into the rest of our world, the rest of our lives. There's no national peace, no world peace, because there's no peace on the inside. We see it everywhere. I mean, think about it. Why did you lock your doors last night? Hopefully you did. <laughs> um, you know, the reason you locked your doors, the reason you locked your car door when you came in here is because there's a chance at least someone could try to get in, right? Try to take something that belongs to you or cause you or your family harm. That's because evil exists. There are bad things in this world. It's all around us. We know that. We see it. In a study, it's an older study, 1983 Psychology Today uh, did a, a survey. Um, and it is older, but I mention it because I don't think much has changed in this area. They actually did a study, and they asked this question. 
They said if there was a button that you had that you could push and annihilate anyone in the world with no repercussions to yourself, would you push it? That's kind of a kind of a, a mean question, isn't it? It's kind of kind of disturbing. What, what's even more disturbing was the results. 66% of people said, yes, absolutely, they would use it in a heartbeat. 66, some of you are thinking of somebody right now you want to <laughs> use that button on, and shame on you, because I didn't do that. But uh, 66%, an even better was qu- a question was asked after this study, I guess it was after it was published, somebody said, if a button like that existed, would anyone live to tell about it? Because, you know, that's all of us. We all have that dark side. You know, some people, of course, the side's darker than others, but we've all got that battle inside. We know there are things we shouldn't do, yet we do them. And it's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. That's where it started, and it still exists today. There's no peace among men because we constantly battle the flesh. But into this world of violence of disunity, of unrest, of racial divide, of uncertainty. God calls us into this world to be peacemakers. You think about it in that context, and you think, well, that's a pretty big task, and it is, but that's still God has called us, and that is the beatitude that we look at today. Uh, We're in our series in the Beatitudes. We've, We've talked about how the Beatitudes describe the inner qualities of a true disciple, and they do. And they answer two very important questions. What does Jesus want from me? And what does he want for me? What does he expect from me? And what does he want for me? And one of the things that he wants from us and for us is peacemaking. He says in verse 9, he says, Blessed, Jesus does, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are called into this world to be actively involved, engaged in making peace. We are to be peacemakers. So if we're going to do that, there's some things we need to realize. The first thing we need to do, if we're going to be peacemakers, understanding that in a world where peace is very rare, um, there are some who interpret peace some ways, some other ways. So and within all that, understanding all that, the first thing we need to do is define peace. We need to know what is peace. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what is he talking about? What is he, what, as a peacemaker, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Most people uh, confuse peace with pacifism, with, you know, kind of like a peace at any cost type of thing, avoiding conflict, that if I can avoid the conflict, that that's peace. And that's, you know, peace at all costs, whatever it takes to keep from, from it's kind of the, uh, the flower child mentality, right? You know, peace, love, harmony, uh, whatever, whatever it takes, just avoiding conflict. And there are some uh, who build entire religions around that philosophy of pacifism. The actual biblical word that's used here carries the idea of being doers of peace or makers of peace. There's work involved. There's action involved. There's something that's expected of me, something specific that God has called me to do. It's, it's not being passive. It's not peace at any cost. What Jesus is talking about is that in order to make peace, in order to be a peacemaker, to be doers of peace, I've got to get busy. There's action involved. There's something that I have to do. There's work involved. If we're going to make peace, we have to be intentional about it. It it requires intentionality. At one time, 
Peacemaking was considered honorable. When we think of peace, probably, maybe not directly, but we're thinking of a peaceful situation that more than likely was forced. The result of a war. Someone conquering someone else and then peace. So a lot of times we think of forced peace. If only we could get control of the situation and make people behave, we would have peace. And that's forced peace. So it's not passivism, but it's also not forced. Caesar Augustus liked to brag about his accomplishments, and one of his accomplishments was the Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And that was a form of peace. The Romans took over everything, and they made everybody behave. But the only reason he was able to force peace was because he had enough swords to stick in enough people's faces and say, either you behave or else. It was forced. So is that really peace if it's forced behavior? It's not passivism. I don't believe it's forced peace either. You can have pockets of peace, and we see that throughout history. But if it's forced, is it really peace? So I would say that peace is not just the absence of war or conflict. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just the fact that there's not war going on in those periods of history where there is an absence of war. Just because war and conflict is not taking place does not mean people are at peace. It doesn't mean that they're at peace with each other, and it certainly doesn't mean they're at peace on the inside. This is true on an international stage. It's also true in the home. If everybody's quiet in the house because dad yells and, and, and shakes his fists and threatens everybody and they're quiet out of fear, is that peace? Is it forced? Is forced peace? Is that real peace? That's no more peace than being at war. I mean, you're still, there's a war raging. There's unrest. There's, there's hatred. There's strife. There's all of these things. There's some things, there's some areas where we think it's peace. It looks like peace, but maybe not so much. And there are times, of course, when the opposite is true, when there really is no peace, and it's evident. There are some things, though, in life that are worth fighting for. And I believe the biblical concept of peace, you can be at peace and still be fighting for something. There are things we should fight for. We should fight for our families, for our husbands, wives, our kids, our grandkids, our parents, our families. We should fight for our church, the freedom to worship, the freedom to gather. Um, the freedom to share the gospel without fear of persecution. Um, and let me tell you, in, in, in recent months, those things have become more fragile than they ever have been in my lifetime. Um, there are some things we should fight for. We should fight for justice. We should fight for people who can't fight for themselves. We should stand for what's right, even if it means risking our own well-being. We should fight for righteousness. To put it plain and simple, we should fight for the things that God tells us to fight for, and we should fight against the things that God tells us to fight against. We should fight for righteousness and against sin. There are some things in life worth fighting for. Freedom. Um, others' lives. I mean, there are things in life worth fighting for. So if we're just defining peace based on conflict or no conflict, that's not a sufficient definition. That's not a biblical definition because peace is not just the absence of war or conflict. The type of peace that God gives is different. Look at John chapter 14, verse 27. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. 
Genuine peace goes deeper than just the absence of conflict. It's richer than that. It gives life to the people, to people in the home, to people in the church, to people in the world. It gives life. It's what allows us to experience the life that God intends for us to experience. It's what allows us to experience God himself. It's what allows us. It's, it's, it means not having to walk on eggshells because you're afraid of offending somebody who's forced you to live at peace. It is... Living the life that God intends for you to live, experiencing him in the way that he intends for you to experience him. Peace in the Bible, if you look at it, it's really a broad term. It involves a lot of different things. It involves, it's more than just the absence of conflict. It's related, when you see peace in the Bible, it's related to health, prosperity, harmony, wholeness, completeness. And all of it, it carries the idea of being complete. And the word that we see, the Hebrew word for peace, is the word shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. It's the Old Testament concept of peace. And it's a word that talks about the well-being of God's people from the richest to the poorest. It really doesn't have anything to do with status. It's from the uttermost to the guttermost. It's, it has to do with being whole, with being complete. It's living in God's kingdom, living with God. The freedom to live out his purpose for your life. It's experiencing living out his purpose for your life. It's living the life that God called you to live, that he created you for. So to put it another way, when we see the word shalom, when we hear that, it is the full presence, peace, abundance, and blessing of God. It's experience all of those things while living out God's purposes for my life. If I want to experience peace, I find it by living out his purposes. And in doing so, I experience the full presence, peace, and blessings of God. That is true peace. That is the biblical definition of peace. And we see this described in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. This idea of shalom, this is what's in mind here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. It's the full blessings of God, the peace of God, the presence of God. It's experiencing that while living out his plan for your life. Peace is about justice. It's about righteousness. It's about the presence of God and where justice prevails and righteousness exists because God is there. That's where you find peace. It's the presence of God. It's being in the center of his will, living out his will for your life. But without those things, lasting peace is just not possible. Without the presence of God, without his will, his kingdom being fulfilled. You may have pockets of peace, periods of time where there's no conflict, but you don't have true, lasting peace. If we want peace, we have to get busy making peace. We need to be intentional, which means we have to be determined to make peace. We need to determine, make the decision. We are going to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm going to determine I'm making a decision to be a peacemaker. So what is a peacemaker? Well, understanding the definition of peace, a peacemaker is someone who is actively working to reconcile men to God and to one another. If being at peace means the presence of God in my life and living out his will for my life, then it stands to reason if I am in sin and separated from God, then I need to be reconciled to God. And so as a peacemaker, as a child of God, part of my job is going to be showing you how to reconcile to God, how to find peace with God. 
I'm a peacemaker, but I'm also going to seek to make peace with other people and help others make peace with each other. My first responsibility is to share the gospel and then help you find peace with God and then help others find peace with each other and be at peace with each other. We are ministers of reconciliation. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 18, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have received the message of reconciliation, Paul is saying. Now we are ministers of reconciliation. We who know Christ know peace with God. We've experienced it. We know how to find peace with God. So now we are to take that message and share it with the lost and dying world and help them find how to, how to find peace with God to discover peace with God. So what does it look like to be a peacemaker? Becoming a peacemaker means, for one thing, I'm going to think about peace. Here are the steps. I think about peace. Everything begins with a thought, doesn't it? Any action begins with a thought. Good actions, bad actions. Acts of righteousness, acts of sin. Everything begins with a thought. So the Bible talks about that so much. You know, our hearts... Our minds, what we dwell on, what we meditate on. So if I'm going to be a peacemaker, one step, one of the initial steps is that I need to think about peace. We have to make a priority. Peacemaking has to be a priority. We think about peace, then we talk about peace. It's not enough just to think about it. We need to talk about it. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. There's work involved. There's an action. And so The beginning of that action is thinking about it. What should I do in this particular situation with what's going on, whatever it is, whatever's wrong, what do I need to do to make peace? What needs to be done? I'm thinking about it. I'm using the brain that God has given me. Himmler once said to his followers, he said, it's fortunate for leaders when people don't think. We should think. You know, if, if there's conflict, if there's a problem, even if it's not conflict, if there's a problem, we need to at least think about what the solution is. How do we solve this problem? One of the biggest mistakes we can make is to not think about our situation in life, to not give it thought, to, to think, oh, if I ignore it, it'll go away. That, that never happens. You know, one of the biggest mistakes. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are sitting around waiting for God to do something in their lives, waiting for God to act. And God's saying, I've given you a brain, and I expect you to use it. And now we shouldn't get ahead of God. We shouldn't make decisions for God. But there are a lot of times where life is uncertain, and we're thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I wish God would just show me when there's someone lost living right next door to you. I mean, there, there, there are times in our lives when we are, we are given opportunities and we miss those opportunities because we're not, we're not using our brain. 
We're not looking for the opportunities that we have. We're waiting on God to do something, some, some grand miracle when there's little bitty things that he's called us to be faithful in. We've been given a brain. God created us with a brain and the ability to think. That's part of being made in his image is to, the ability to do and to create and all of these things. And, and we, we should use that. We should think. But you don't just think, you talk. We think about, blessed are those who think, especially those who think about peace, but also we should talk about peace. There was a young man named Heinz. Heinz grew up in, in uh, 1934 in Europe. He lived in a small town. He was Jewish, and, and this was during uh, Hitler's rising to power and anti-Semitism's growing, and, and his little village that he lived in, anti-Semitism per- persecution was intensifying. Okay, it was just, you know, Hitler's thugs were everywhere in the streets, and, and persecution of Jews was growing greatly. And so it wasn't anything to see Hitler's men beating some Jewish kid or, or whatever, and it was just commonplace. And so Heinz, he's 11 years old at this time, growing up in this little town, and he learned that he, if he wanted to avoid trouble, he would avoid conflict. And so if he's walking down the street and he sees some of Hitler's men picking on one of his friends, he would just cross to the other side of the street and try to avoid the conflict. But one day, he's walking down the street, some of Hitler's men approached him, and it was obvious he wasn't going to be able to walk away from it. And he thinks a beating's probably coming because that's usually what happened. He would be confronted, or a Jewish kid would be confronted, and the the soldiers would end up beating them just because they could. But something strange happened. Heinz talked his way out of it. He convinced, somehow, he convinced Hitler's thugs that beating him was not the solution to whatever problem they had with him. A little 11-year-old kid talked his way out of it. And he avoided getting beaten that day. And he had a lot of time to perfect that skill because that happened over and over and over again. And many times he, he avoided the conflict not by running away, but by talking his way out of it. So he developed a knack for this. And later in life, you know, he grew up and his parents uh, somehow escaped and found their way to America. And later in life, he became known as a peacemaker, a, a negotiator. He downplayed that that experience in his life, but I think we probably know what gave him the ability. He was, he was known as a bridge builder. He could negotiate peace between sides. He was good at it. He, his legacy is that. We don't know him as Heinz. We know him by his American name, Henry Kissinger. He's a peacemaker, a negotiator, and he learned in difficult circumstances how to use words to achieve peace. Words are powerful for good and for bad. And so we think about peace, but we also, we need to talk about peace. We need to be willing to negotiate. Words can be powerful. Then we should tell the truth. Honesty is a part of peacemaking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, There can only be peace when it does not rest in lies and injustice. We've gotten so accustomed to being lied to in our society, to being tricked. Um, We're suspicious people. I mean, that's why when you serve somebody, they're automatically suspicious. What do you expect? What do you want? What's the catch? We're just used to that. I mean, we're used to being tricked. We're used to being lied to. But peacemakers are honest. We, we see examples of the opposite, but there are examples of those who exemplify this. When Dwight Eisenhower was president, 
um, they uh, started the U-2 spy plane missions. Of course, everybody remembers uh, Francis Gary Powers, the U-2 spy plane getting shot down. Well, they developed the U-2 spy plane so that they could spy on Russia, the U.S. could spy on Russia, and they could do it at such altitudes, take such good pictures that Russia would never know about it. And they took great measures to keep Russia from knowing about it. They trained these pilots, they put them in these planes, and if something went wrong, they had a self-destruct button, which would destroy the plane. And they could either bail out when they pushed the button, or they could take a suicide pill, and, and, or they could go down with the plane. But they were trained specifically to not let anything occur to where the Russians would find out. Well, they've been doing these missions, and, and Khrushchev and Eisenhower, they were starting to try to develop a relationship, and it was actually going pretty well. And it's so much so that Eisenhower didn't want to risk the relationship going sour. There was a summit meeting coming up, and he considered stopping the spy missions. He didn't want anything to happen to jeopardize what he was trying to build. Well, he agreed to one more mission, but it had to take place before that summit meeting that they had. And that meeting was to take place on May the 1st. And just so happens that that was the day. <laughs> he said that it had to take place before, but that was actually the day that that last spy, that the, the U-2 spy plane, was shot down. That it was in May the, on May the 1st, 1960. Well, they thought, Americans thought, hey, we've taken every precaution this guy knew what to do. There's no way the Russians are going to know that we were spying on them. So they developed this, they concocted this story that the, the pilot had radio in, that he lost oxygen, he was on some weather mission, right? And that we lost contact, he drifted into Russian airspace. But what they didn't know was that Russia had the plane and they had powers and they knew what we were up to. They knew what we were doing. And so all that came to light, right? And so Eisenhower had a choice to make. He could either own up to it, or he could try to cover it up even more. To his credit, though, he owned up to it. Here's what he, Clint Hill wrote in his book, Five Presidents, Secret Service Agent, the one that jumped on the back of JFK's car. He, he protected five presidents, and he wrote about this in his book. He said this, Eisenhower goes on television, he apologizes, he takes full blame for it. It's on me. He, he does the right thing. He owns up to it. And here's, here was Clint Hill, who saw all of this firsthand. Here was his perspective. He said, this incident and the way it was handled was a good lesson that covering something up and lying about it instead of acknowledging the truth of the matter will cause more trouble than admitting the wrongdoing at the outset. The U.S. tried to cover it up. They got caught with egg on their face. But in the end, Eisenhower owned up to it. And people that knew him said that's who he was. He would much rather own up to it and face the consequences. That's just the type of guy he was. Peacemakers are, are truth-tellers. And, and listen, how much easier would our lives be if we just told the truth? I mean, a lot of times, you know, you tell a lie, then you got to tell a lie to cover up the lie, then you forget which lie you told. And, I mean, it's just a mess. And we see that. We see examples of that. We see families destroyed over that. We should be able to speak the truth. And we live in a country that is so divided, and one of the reasons we are so divided is because we can't be honest with each other without offending each other. We can't discuss differences and disagree and come up with solutions. We just go to our corners, we divide, and we won't talk about it. And we, you know, we, we disagree, there's no, there's no willingness, and we as Christians should be able to confront sin and do it honestly and with love for the purpose of winning the lost. 
We should be able to tell the truth, but to be able to do it with love. There should be room for disagreement, room for discussion, and that's what peacemakers are able to do. They're able to confront wrongdoing in a way that's not ostracizing that person, making them feel like an outcast, because the truth is we're all outcasts before we're saved. We should be able to do that in a way that builds, builds them up and encourages them to turn to Christ for healing and forgiveness. This is all part of peacemaking. But we also have to practice peace. Again, there's doing involved. There's intentionality. There's, there's sort of an irony in some of Jesus' statements when you look at it. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Don't think I came... I mean, the angel said, Peace on earth, right? He says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. <laughs> it's kind of contradictory. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But, but what he's talking about here is not a literal sword, and that disappointed some of his followers. They thought, you know, the whole Roman peace thing, the Romans had taken over everything. And they thought that the Jews thought that, that the Messiah would free them from Roman rule. He thought that he would come with a literal sword and free them, but he didn't do that. His sword was not literal. It was, it was the type of sword, though, that could cut through all of the injustices of society, all of the unrighteousness, not to not to wage war on Rome, but this sword is metaphorical. It cuts as deep as bone and marrow. It's able to reveal things inside me that I don't even know about, sin that exists, things that are wrong. It's able to uncover unrighteousness, to expose it, to shed light on sin. This is the sword that Jesus came with. it's, It's teaching that raises questions about the status quo, that turns society on its end the greatest is the least the least is the greatest humility is the way to achieve greatness in the kingdom of god that that's the sword that jesus brought and yeah i mean it it caused quite a ruckus but it wasn't what people expected but it still is if we're going to follow christ it teaches us that a shift has to take place a shift in power and it begins with my giving up my right to control my life and submitting to him and allowing him to control my life. There has to be humility and submission on both sides in order for peace to be attained, right? In any situation, there's got to be some humility, some give and take. And, and for me, I mean, I have to be willing to submit to God, but then with others, if I'm going to be a peacemaker, I've got to promote humility. I've got to live humility. There's got to be humility. There's got to be a willingness to put others above myself. Remember, the Beatitudes are like a ladder, right? We've talked about how each one leads to the next. Um, you can't have one without the other. It's not, uh, it's not one or the other. It's all or nothing. And each one builds on the next. And this is certainly true with peacemaking. Who's more able, able or willing to make peace than those who are poor? And those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They recognize their condition before God. And they they desire peace with God. Those who mourn, they see the tears, they see the futility of fighting, and they mourn over it. And so they want peace. The meek who have no turf to protect anyway, they don't have anything to protect, so, you know, they're they're willing, they're, they're eager for peace. The merciful, those who embrace forgiveness and show mercy. Mercy, they've received much, they're willing to give mercy. And then the pure in heart. They only want one thing and the right thing. They want to be with the Lord. They focus on the Lord. And because they want that and experience the joys of that, they want others to experience that as well. So they get busy making peace. 
They are ministers of reconciliation. Want to see others reconciled to God. The reality is, peacemaking is, is really a preventative remedy. If we're not doing it all the time, if we wait till there's conflict, it's, it's, it's really too late. And we've got to be peacemakers, actively involved in promoting peace, championing, being ambassadors for Christ, having the gospel front and center. And the linchpin of all of this is love, the love of Jesus. If we love the same way that Jesus does, if we look at other people through his eyes, then we will want them to find peace with God, and we will want to be at peace with them. Martin Luther King said this. He understood the heart of this problem. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity or animosity. By its very nature, listen to this, by its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. The linchpin is love, the love of Christ. If we want to build each other up, we need to love each other the same way Jesus does, the same way Jesus loves me, the same way Jesus loves us. I have to seek to love others the same way we get rid of our enemies. Love is the linchpin. It's the key. Jesus exemplifies this. Washing the disciples' feet, the men he created, he's washing their feet, including Judas. Loving a woman that the the society's ready to murder because they consider her worse than anybody else. Having dinner with tax collectors. I mean, Jesus exemplifies loving the outcasts, desiring that they experience peace with God, peace with himself. If we're going to be peacemakers, we start with the love of Christ. And it begins at home. It begins with my wife, my kids. It begins with the people in my church, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, the people around me. We begin with the people that we know. It, it's, it's in church generational gaps, uh, differences, backgrounds, different political views, different ideologies. We've got to be willing to focus on the one thing that matters, on Christ, and understand that we're all different. Strengths, weaknesses, everything in between. It touches every area of our lives. It touches racial reconciliation. Unrest. We're all different. We've all got things about us that, things about you I don't like, things about me you don't like. I mean, there is a way to find peace without violence, and that is putting Christ at the front and in the middle. It's peace with God first. One of the main reasons the church exists is that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation, to show people how to find peace with God, to help others reconcile with God. So we practice peace, and then we promote forgiveness. And this is so very important. If love is the linchpin, forgiveness is the foundation. And that, that's, if we can't forgive accept and give forgiveness, then we'll never find peace. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, and he says this. He says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If I forgive, I'll be forgiven. If I don't, I won't. That's pretty plain and simple. That's what Jesus teaches. Peacemaking 
is about forgiveness. But you know, one of the reasons this is so hard is because there's something kind of disgustingly enticing about holding a grudge. <laughs> we think we're hurting getting that person back, right? Or keeping him in our prison of unforgiveness. I'll show them. And the reality is, is we're hurting ourselves. Forgiveness. We've got to be willing to forgive. The gospel can free us from the blame game. And there's enough blame in our society to go around, isn't there? Oh, we play the blame game. Politics, social issues, but forgiveness, the gospel can free us from the blame game. Forgiveness is the only cure. And it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a decision. It's not going into it saying, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, expecting you to do the same because I, I've expected, I know you've done me wrong. It's I'm willing to do what's right. I'm willing to give forgiveness, even if it's not reciprocated. It's a decision. It is based on love, agape love, which is a choice. I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. You know, we're going to work this out. We're going to find common ground. It's being willing to forgive, being willing to give, being willing to receive forgiveness. The goal is reconciliation, forgiveness. It's peace. Blessed are the peacemakers because they are able to see others through Jesus' eyes. They see others the same way that Jesus does. So here's a question. Are you a peacemaker or are you a peacebreaker? You know, peace breakers like to gossip, like to stir up trouble, stir the pot. Peacemakers seek peace, reconciliation, peace with God, peace with others. The problem is peacemaking is not easy. And most of the time, people aren't going to understand why you're doing it. Sometimes you may even get persecuted for it. You may be mistreated because of it. You, you'll be misunderstood at the least, persecuted at the, at the worst, <laughs> I mean, that peacemaking is not easy, but we're still called to be peacemakers. I mean, even Paul said to the Romans, live at peace with everyone, but he added, if at all possible. Some people it's impossible to make peace with, isn't it? No matter how hard you try. It's not easy work, but we're still called to do it. In 1781, Ben Franklin wrote to John Adams, blessed are the peacemakers, is, I suppose, for another world. In this world, they are frequently cursed peacemakers. And that's true. It seems that way. Peacemaking is tough, but it's worth it because of the promise that Jesus gives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. You're in the family of God. So through making peace, in a way, we discover our identity. We discover our identity through peacemaking. We have an identity in Christ. We all have an identity in Christ. And one of the ways we discover that identity is through peacemaking, by becoming peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. <clears throat> peacemaking in Jesus' kingdom is about sons and daughters. It's a bit about family. It's about being a part of God's family. The word that's translated called here has the idea of officially being assigned or being officially signed or designated. It's like when we have a committee and we appoint a chairman. You're, you're appointing that person the chairperson of that committee. They're assigned. They're given a responsibility. Uh, there's honor in that. There's privilege in that. And that, that's the idea here is that we, as children of God, have been assigned the duty of peacemaking. So to discover my identity in the family of God, to be a brother or sister to Jesus, who says, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God, we get rid of the world's conventional wisdom that says play it safe, peace, with, peace at all costs, or, or force peace is the way to go, get along whatever, avoid conflict, avoid any disruption. We get rid of all of that because as a part of God's family, we know we are to be actively involved in making peace. We are to be actively involved in pointing people to Christ and seeking peace with our fellow man. That's one of the ways, according to Jesus, that we show we are a part of the family of God. One of our identification markers is that we are at peace with God and we are making peace with other people. Jesus is saying that those who are known to be peacemakers will be recognized for exactly what they are as sons of God, as daughters of God. We share his name. We are his family. This also means that we share in his fortune, that we are heirs. There's a privilege involved. There's responsibility. I'm a peacemaker, but then there's privilege. I'm also an heir. I have access to God and all that he is and all that he has. I'm heirs to his fortune. And that's another promise here. We're called, named, recognized, designated children of God with all of the rights and privileges of that. So when you become a peacemaker, the reality is you become like God. So if I want to be like Christ, one of those characteristics, one of the things that I have to do is to be a peacemaker. We don't see it a lot in our world today. Many times we see the opposite, but in our hearts and our minds, if we want to keep the war from spilling out, we've got to be actively involved in making peace. Well, we see violence every day, don't we? See unrest, but in this world, again, not much peace, but it's into this world that God's called us to be peacemakers. This is where he's called us to get busy and active making peace. We're called to go and make peace. There's different values, differences all around us, but blessed are the peacemakers. And here's the thing, in God's kingdom, we all have a part. We all have something that we can do. We all have a way we can contribute to this. Think about it. Just, just a couple of examples. If you have a phone, you can make a call to somebody who needs to be loved or somebody you need to talk to to set the record straight or whatever. If you've got a paper, you can write a letter. If you have a kitchen, you can make somebody a meal and show them the love of Christ. If you've got a billfold, you can give money to support a ministry, to help somebody in need that, that needs, that's going without right now. If you have two hands, you can put them to work to serve somebody, to do something for them. If you've got two feet, you can go see somebody who's in pain to love on them. Or you can pick up the phone again and call them and love on them. You've got two ears, you can listen to somebody who's hurting, who just needs somebody to talk to. If you've got two eyes, you can lift them up and see the people around you that are hurting. You know, so many times we're so focused on our own lives. We've got tunnel vision. We're not looking at the needs of others. If you've got two lips, you can preach the gospel of peace. You don't have to be a preacher to do that. Share the gospel. Tell others your experience. Help them find peace with God. We all have a part to play. And the truth is, we are all different, and our roles are different. Now, I'm asking. Eli and Andy to help me with this this morning. Even if you, I don't know if you knew this, but we are all like M&Ms. Did y'all know that? 
Not that we all like M&Ms. Of course, I do, but we are all like M&Ms. And the one thing about M&Ms is that they are different colors, aren't they? And I'm going to pour all these into a bowl. Do y'all like M&Ms? I know you do. All right, y'all stand here. Okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to let you guys pick an M&M, okay? But I'm going to have to get you to do something before you do that. Now, these M&Ms represent us, different colors, some of them even different shapes. You know, they're, they're not all perfectly the same. They're different. Different colors, different shapes. And we're all like that. We're all different. So here's what I want you to do, all right? I need for you to close your eyes and keep them closed, all right? There you go. All right. You got it? All right. Not that we don't trust Eli to keep his eyes closed, but you know. All right, keep them closed and stick out your hand. Do not look, okay? All right, pick one M&M, any one. You got it? Okay, put it in your mouth. All right, Eli, keep your eyes closed. All right, pick one M&M, one M&M. put it in your mouth. Okay, chew it up. Does it taste good? Okay, open your eyes. What color was the M&M that you ate? Why not? They all taste the same. They all taste the same, right? We are all like M&Ms. We tend to look at the outside, the colors, the shapes, the sizes. But God looks at what's on the inside. What's the best part of the M&M? The chocolate on the inside, right? They all taste the same because they've all got yummy chocolate on the inside, don't they? We are like M&Ms. Here, y'all take these. Thank you very much. Go sit by your mother. Don't ruin your lunch. Sorry, Mom. Um, but we look at the outside. We see what's on the outside. We see different colors. We see different races. But it's the inside that matters. We learn in 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He sees not only what we are, but what we can become. He sees what he's created, and he sees good. And he wants to make us what he wants us to be. We, if we are going to be peacemakers, we have to learn to look at not just the outward appearance, not just make judgment calls based on what people look like. We've got to be able to look at the heart the same way that God does. And the only way we can do that is if we attain Jesus' vision, if it's him living in and through us, performing the act of peacemaking through us. We as God's church, as God's people are called to be peacemakers. We need to look at other people's people as who they really are, as sinners in need of a Savior, just like I am, I was, and just like you. We all, we're lost in need of forgiveness, in need of salvation until Jesus saves us. We look at the heart, and we all have a part to play, something that we can do to make peace. God asks us to surrender to him and allow him to work in and through us to make peace. That's the biggest step is surrender, surrendering to him and allowing him to work through us. But here's the thing. He's not willing, he's not asking us to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. I mean, he was peace on earth, the the angel said, yet he was persecuted. I mean, he is the creator of the world, yet he hung on a cross. He is the Prince of Peace, yet he died the most cruel, gruesome, violent death anyone has ever known. The Prince of Peace. And he did it so that we could have peace with God. He did it so that we could be rescued from sin. He is the ultimate peacemaker. 
So when he says, go and make peace, he's not asking you to do something he hasn't already done himself. Jesus is the example, but he's also the one that works in and through us. He is the way. He is the way to life, and he is the way to become a peacemaker. It has to be him. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons and daughters of God. That is the reward. We are a part of God's family. The reward is being a part of his family. So the question is, first and foremost, number one, as a peacemaker, are you a part of God's family? Do you know him as Lord and Savior? Have you allowed him to enter into your life and give you peace with God? The only way you can have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And then, as a follower of Christ, am I actively involved? If, I, if I'm not at peace with God, that's the first step. Accept Christ. Invite him into your life. And then once I am a child of God, what am I doing to make peace? Am I sharing the gospel? Am I helping others find peace with God? Am I serving others? Am I promoting peace? Or am I causing strife and division? Am I focusing on differences on the outside? Or am I looking on the inside and helping others grow in their relationship with Christ and become what God wants them to become? Let's take a few moments to go before the Lord in prayer. And you, I mean, two simple questions. Are you at peace with God and are you busy making peace? And you may have questions about what that means. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about how to to, to talk with us, to connect with us and get answers to those questions. But let me invite you just to spend a few moments in prayer talking to the Lord about where you are as it relates to being a peacemaker or being a son or a daughter of God. And if, if you don't know him, you can cry out to him and he will come into your life and he will forgive you. He will give you peace with God and he'll set you on your course of becoming a peacemaker. And if you are a child of God, you know, what, what, how does this apply to your life? What, is this, what, what does being a peacemaker mean? And are you living up to that? Father, we come to you and thank you. We recognize that peacemaking is, is difficult, is tough. We may be persecuted for it. But we're promoting you. We're putting you at the front and in the center. God, we're recognizing that... Um, we're all flawed. We're all sinful. We've all fallen short of your glory. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things wrong, and none of us are perfect. We're all at war within our hearts, within ourselves, battling the flesh, battling weaknesses and temptations. But we live in submission to you. We allow you to come into our lives and to control our lives, to call the shots, to lead God and direct us, regardless of of what the circumstances of life are. We seek righteousness. We fight for our families and for what's good and right. We don't take for granted the privilege and the honor, the ability to serve you and to share the gospel without fear of persecution. We get busy doing that, knowing that it could easily be taken away. But most importantly, we are a part of your family. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody out there today who, who doesn't know you, somebody here in this building today, they don't, they don't know you personally, Lord, I pray that they would just cry out to you right now from where they are. Lord, you will hear them. You will answer their prayer. You will come into their life. If they will ask you for forgiveness of sin, you will give it because you've paid for that forgiveness with your life. You, the Prince of Peace, dying in a horrible, 
violent death, taking on all the sin of mankind, the punishment, the wrath of God, so that we could be free, being raised from the dead three days later so that we could conquer death and live with you for all of eternity. And if, if we will cry out to you, for those that don't know you, if they will cry out to you, you will freely give that forgiveness and they will find peace with you. For those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that we will be busy making peace, that we as your people will be defined by love, your love, not division, not differences, but love, the love of Jesus. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name, it is in your holy and precious name that we do pray. Amen.